And today we are going to talk about climate change. Um, anyway, sorry, you're doing the intro. So, I am. Uh, I was just waiting for you to shut, shut the, the fuck, fuck up. up. <laughs> <laughs> That's your cold open, D. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you want to clear your throat anyway? <clears throat> Hello and welcome to Business Without Bullshit. I'm Philippa Sturt and alongside me is my co-host, Andy Uri. Hello. Hi, Andy. And we're joined by Anjali Beddy. Hi, Anjali. Hi. Anjali is the founder and CEO of the Psych AI Group, who help clients decode and predict human behavior through employing a blend of psychology and AI. They empower clients to see around corners, take control of potential risks, and discover opportunities. Anjali is a regular keynote speaker on topics of behavioral science and technology, with appearances at the New York Climate Week. Was that this year? That was this year. How was it? It was amazing. It was probably the most invigorating event I've been to in the last five years. But this wasn't really a conference, though, because basically the whole city kind of, it isn't shut down because New York never shuts down. But you have all these different venues where some really engaging conversations around climate are happening and not just a, oh, let's go greenwash something or let's go build a sustainable brand. Was there a panic building? That would have been quite funny. People just go, fuck, <laughs> oh, fuck, just burning stuff and jumping out of windows. <laughs> That'd be great. That'd be like the, the, the de-stress room, wouldn't it? You know, That may be a proper representation of what climate change is doing to the planet. Yeah, true. So what did you, what did you learn? Oh God, I learned so many things. I think I learned that the words shareholder value oh, are probably the biggest barrier <laughs> to us actually attaining mm. net zero. So that of course was one really big thing. I think what was most exciting was how many businesses are now baking into their business model, being sustainable and actually doing right by the planet, which I haven't seen that before. So the urgency level is different. The creativity around business models is different. And... uh yeah, hopefully we don't all uh, burn a fiery death. And what were you doing there? Your business is 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 trying to predict human behaviour. I mean, we're sort of both very predictable and we're rather unpredictable, aren't we? I mean, you know. I saw you when you said we're both. I thought you were talking about us specifically. Yeah, <laughs> we're both pretty predictable. Pretty predictable. <laughs> we are fucking predictable. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad we cleared that up. <laughs> but what, anyway. you know, you trying to work out at the, because because what we got to do is change behaviour, and you know, people don't really like to be told what to do. And frankly, I have this graph in my head. I'm always thinking when people are like, you know, amount of people dying, how much we do about climate change. That's kind of what's going to happen. You know, people will keep fucking dying until we do enough about it. And, you know, is that what this, one of the things you must be interested in, you know, to predict human behavior so you can influence it or not? As essentially, I mean, that's the objective, because if you look at where we are as a society, if we are going to move towards a place where we're operating in a sustainable way, we have to change the way we behave. So, and I know for me personally, the only thing I've really done in the last 10 years to be more sort of climate friendly, eat maybe a little bit less meat, which I didn't eat that much of anyway. Recycle, we all do that. That's the only thing we probably all do. With our seven bins. Exactly, right. exactly. And maybe I take the train, you know, a little bit more frequently when I go to mainland Europe as opposed to flying. Aside from that, there's not that much personally that I have done to move the climate agenda forward. And I think that's the majority of people. Also, because like you said, we don't know what to do. It's really confusing, right? Like no one knows what to do. It's not, it's not digestible. It's not in a way that our very simple brains can comprehend and we know what to do. And this is one of those things that if we don't overcome 
our cognitive barriers and biases, it's not going to go anywhere. And that's why the last 10 years of climate storytelling hasn't worked. Is it because it's just such a big thing that we can't look at it in its entirety? We can't digest it. because, And also you're talking about a future state. And as human beings, we're not that as imaginative or creative as we like to think we are. So you have to kind of paint the scene for people of if you do X, Y will happen. If you don't do X, okay, we're all going to die. But nobody has a sense of what that actually looks like in tangible terms. So like with Climate Week, that's one of the things that we talk a lot about is climate storytelling. But then there's a flip side, which is we spent all this money on you know, renewable energy, wind farms, all this stuff. And then we forgot to think about, oh, the only way to actually implement this is to get societies and communities to actually want to have these massive wind parks mm-hmm. on their hilltop or off the shore from where they live. Doesn't it kind of piss you off, though, when people are like, you know, oh, no, that's a lovely field. I don't Nimbyism. want to help the world. I don't know, it's this short-sightedism. It's like, you know, I don't want all oh, these yeah. TV aerials was the one back in the day, and then it was satellite dishes, and it's just like, I mean, and those those aren't even for the environment. When it's like for the environment, you're like, oh, come on. Yeah, completely. I mean, we've seen a few cases where there's disinformation being spread by wealthy communities who just don't want offshore wind parks in the area where they have their summer homes. Not even their regular homes, their summer homes. Because it will spoil the view. Exactly. I think it's a bit linked when you said, oh, humans aren't as creative as you think. I think I think actually there's about 10% of humans pumping out more ideas than we know what to do with. with. But, but the rest of the rest of us, and maybe even those people, we all hate change. You know, we're just sort of creatures of habit, aren't we? So I think it, with climate in particular, why it's so hard to solve for is that we can't imagine that future reality. No. So, and this is where I think something like VR is really, really Mm. useful to drop people into that reality about what that looks and feels like. And there's some great experiences like Tree that have been done. But even then, if you then put them in that apocalyptic reality, then they freeze and become ostriches with their head in the sand. So then we create a whole different set of problems. really don't want to think about it. Yeah, exactly. And that's what we do, right? It's like the avoidance aspect. So this New York thing where people kind of sitting around saying, what is this place we want to live in? I think it was more of a, how do we prevent ourselves from like going up in smoke? Okay. What are the things we don't want to do? Yeah, exactly. I think that's easier sometimes for us to frame yeah. what we don't want versus what we do want. Angelie, what, what what we haven't done is ask you what's keeping you up at night. Is it the yes. climate change or is it something else? It is something else, actually. So I think for anyone in tech right now, and especially in the AI space, we should be asking ourselves the question, is what we're building lending itself to a future that we actually want to live in and that we are remotely proud that we contributed to. Mm. And I think that's something, especially when you're designing the kind of technology that we are, applying it in the ways that we are, is something you're constantly thinking about. It's about what are we doing with AI and is it the right thing? Yeah, are we building models that are just fundamentally biased that are going to dramatically skew sort of certain societal outcomes like... You know, whether we consider women more or less toxic than men or whether people of color get hit more by self-driving cars, which is actually happening right now. Is it? It's a training data issue. So when you're developing these really, really large models, whether they're visual, language, whatever it might be, the inputs to it are what it learns off of. If you went to, let's say, look, I'm from the States, so I'm going to give you some extreme American examples. If you went to a Christian school run by Mormons, the way that you learn history is going to be very, very different from, let's say, if you go to a more hippie school in Berkeley. I, gotcha. I kind of went to both, so I can speak from both perspectives. So, 
Imagine a, a kid who learns these two different perspectives of history. What they're going to repeat, what they're going to regurgitate, and what they've learned is fundamentally different. Same thing with an AI model. If you give it inputs that have a certain perspective included in that data set, that's the perspective the model learns and then reinforces and scales. So similarly, in the self-driving car example, or let's say these large language models that Google, Facebook, Reddit, all the major tech companies use, the data set that they have is generally fundamentally biased because human beings historically have been fundamentally biased. Sure. And that's what it's learning. It's a bit like that whole thing about all crush test dummies being men rather than women. Exactly. And therefore seatbelts don't really work for women. It's the exact same thing. So that's a lot about what we think about and spend a lot of time trying to ensure we don't do because we work in the space of disinformation, risk and crisis. And if we get it wrong, it has really significant implications in a lot of instances. Like we were just working with a few uh, asylum centers based in uh, the Netherlands where they're trying to predict are people going to riot because we're extending how long an asylum center is open. And if you get that wrong, that's kind of a big deal because there have been a number of instances of those centers getting lit on fire by protesters. The longer they're open, the more likely there's an incident. Oftentimes, yeah. Mm. So, so it's things like that that we're extra, extra careful about because if we get it wrong, the implications are severe. Sorry, I was just going to say, it's kind of this thing that we, whenever a new technology comes along, we kind of abrogate responsibility and go, oh, great, this thing can do it Thank all. you. Do it all for us without realizing that you still have to be in control of it. Exactly. And this is the thing that probably annoys me most in the whole AI space is that we talk about AI like AI is a human and making decisions for itself and assign it sentience. We don't need to do that. We are training it. We decide where it gets applied. But we're sort of relinquishing our uh, agency as people and as designers of this technology, which is fundamentally dangerous. It's like being like, oh, I created this massive weapon. Oops, I accidentally dropped it somewhere. Okay, now that happened. It's the weapon's fault. My bad. Is that the approach we're taking then? We're kind of let, trying to let it go off, are we? I think in some instances, that's not what we want. I think in some instances, we are not thinking about the fact that that's what we're doing mm. in the grander scheme of things. Partially because we don't really understand what AI is. And AI can be a lot of different things. But then you've got the elements of it's so hard to kind of think about where we deploy it. It requires a lot of vision. It requires a lot of creativity. It requires having a, a, a vision as to what do we want things to look like? Where do we want business to go? And at the same time, there's such a big rush to capture the AI revolution to make as much money as possible. Again, shareholder value that we're not actually thinking about what we're injecting into the nervous system of society. So it just creates a lot of uh, potential for imbalance. Let's put it that way. How does the Psych AI group fit into that? Like, what, what are you specifically dealing with? We are focused on a very specific part of AI, which is in the natural language processing domain. Basically, we analyze words that people use to be able to understand psychologically what's motivating behavior. So we work with all models that are validated, very relevant to sort of human psychology. And so it's a very strong sort of scientific backing and relevance. And then we use that to understand things like why people would believe disinformation or why mm -hmm. people would be wanting to shoot at a windmill in Texas, which 
and has happened multiple times. So we understand and we deploy our technology in the instance of trying to understand a lot of these underlying motivations to things that are like really wicked problems. So when you're doing it and you're saying you're, you are psychologists, are you? And then you've developed some AI, which helps you try and understand behavior. Yeah, it's a hybrid team. So you've got psychologists and then data scientists and a lot of very uh, intense debates and creative arguments of figuring out how do we bring these two worlds together. Yeah. I mean, do you find that within your team, you need people of sort of, you know, I guess diverse walks of life, but also people who are specialized in some ways in manipulation or not? It's cognitive diversity. I mean, you've got the diversity sort of lenses that we normally talk about, right? Mm. Like age, gender, ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can go on for days, but it really comes down to diversity of thought, diversity of experience, and seeing the world from a lot of different lenses. And that's something everyone on the team has. So, And I think it also is operating with a really strong sort of set of parameters around where you deploy it and where you do not deploy it. So, And we said at the outset when we started, no political elections, not getting anywhere near that. Wise. No oil and gas, no tobacco, none of the obvious stuff that we know is sort of making everything kind of fall sideways. That's amazing. So someone will hire you and you come in like a sort of specialist team. You were a psychologist by training originally or? I'm trained as a computational political scientist. Of course you are. So. <laughs> a CPS. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> just the old CPS yeah, just degree. The C- computational political sciences. Okay. Okay. You use maths to predict uh, elections. Is that? No. So I actually wrote my dissertation on the Arab-Israeli wars and why leaders would fight those wars to decisive events from a psychological perspective. I mean, that's very interesting right now. You must be in demand. Yeah, it's an interesting time. It Mm. is a very interesting time. Incidentally, I actually started my career in journalism because my language skills were pretty good at the time and I didn't want to join a three-letter agency in the States, which is, you know, when you graduate into the recession, the only thing that they tell you you can do. Um, So I actually was between Israel and the West Bank for, you know, part of my sort of early career. But, you know, the hardest thing I think of this conflict is I've never seen this much disinformation on any conflict at any point. The Israel one? This one right now, yeah. Yeah. It's just rife with disinformation. On both sides, all over. All over the place. So that's what makes it so difficult. Because if you're getting that level of disinformation that's speaking to people's emotions, their values, their beliefs it's going to enhance the polarization, which then with something like this, it's not even so much journalism being the means to find the common ground. It's us as human beings being able to empathize with each other and meet each other halfway in some way where we don't forget each other's humanity. That's the problem, right? And the more polarized it gets, the more it pulls apart and the harder it is to create that bridge. And this is a lot of you know what inspired me to create the company, was data in many ways is the ultimate diplomat and the ultimate bridge to create empathy. The more you know about people, the less likely you are to want to kill them. Yeah, exactly. Because then you actually can develop stories and narratives and comms that actually builds that bridge. But if you don't know those things, if you don't know how to create that connection point, if I don't know where you are on the other side of the table over there, and that very lovely blue blazer, by the way, and I can't... I particularly like your red blazer. <laughs> oh, thank well. we'll you. Swap oh, thank you. <laughs> exactly, there you go. Like a football match, you're going to like swap. <laughs> but somewhere we need to find purple, and our common humanity will yes. also still exist in the purple. And I think that was the most profound lesson I learned as a journalist, because I was on both sides of the border. Most journalists, when they go, they stay in the West Bank or they stay in Israel. I went to both. 
because I wanted to understand the stories on both sides, but to emotionally connect with people on both sides as well, because that would make my stories have a much stronger authenticity, but a lot more nuance and texture. And it was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done because you have to deal with the checkpoints and all that nonsense. But I got to meet people on the Israeli side of the border who are absolutely amazing and so kind-hearted and very thoughtful and some of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. Same thing on the Palestinian side of the border. So we're not all that different from each other. It's these sort of polarities that get exacerbated, especially in times of conflict. And when you have these groups like a Hamas who go and do these things and it exacerbates everything and then we lose sense of each other's common humanity even more. Mm -hmm. So I keep watching that spiral over and over again. It's like Groundhog Day, yes. but a more violent Groundhog For Day. thousands of years. You not, know. Not, I mean, in this case, I mean, not... Thousands of years, no, no, necessarily, but humans but keep doing the same stupid shit. We really so do. Because we we're really so do. tribal. I read this thing about how when you're in our tribe, we'll do anything for you. We'll kill for you. We'll, we'll take the shirt off our back. We'll, we'll literally, we'll suffer. We'll lose life. We'll suffer anything to protect our tribe. But when you're not in our tribe, we, we're animals. We hate you. We, you know, it's in group versus out group dynamics, that's exactly what we're living right now. If you, for example, are a Democrat in the, in the States, mm. The Republicans to you are like, oh my God, these crazy, insane people. Yeah, yeah. If you're a Republican in the US, it's also, oh my God, the Democrats, these crazy, insane people. I think everyone has to join the middle party. That's why I want the liberals, everyone to join the liberals here. Because you keep I think, on that No, stick. but we'll that's the whole eventually. point. The yeah. ends don't work. I was just going to say, you were a computational political scientist who became a journalist. How did that translate into... What I'm doing now? Yes, psych AI. Yeah, so... I, when I was a journalist, I think I got tired and burnt out pretty quickly. A, you know, being in that part yeah. of the world, it's a little stressful. Really? Yeah, slightly. 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 The food was amazing though. The food mm. was on point. But what I kept finding was that no matter what I wrote, it didn't matter because it kept getting caught in people's cognitive biases. So, and there's no way to actually have impact. And I'm probably one of my biggest psychological drivers is being able to have a, a, an impact. Because you'd say something that they didn't like and then they say, oh, I'm not reading yeah. her. And everyone's like, oh, you know, you hate us. You want us dead. I'm like, no, I don't actually want you dead. Like, that's not what Or even, I'm there. not going to read that because you're talking to a Palestinian or you're talking to an Israeli. So there's no point in me reading what you've said. There's no way to bridge that way. And that's yeah. part of the biggest issues with journalism, especially uh, non-editorialized journalism. Because people believe emotions, they get hook on to those more than they hook on to facts. Mm. So a nuanced, textured story that presents both sides, that has become less and less popular over time as the media ecosystem has shifted. So got a little burnt out on it, thought I'd go film, did that for a minute, and then was like, okay, I'm going to go be a film producer now. So what should I do? I'll go study business and film. So I ended up at the University of Southern California, which is where Spielberg, James mm -hmm. Cameron, George Lucas, they all went there. The sound studio in there is incredible, by the way, because George Lucas uh, put that in. And then I very quickly got pulled into an innovation lab uh, in the media and communication school that was run by Jonathan Taplin, who was Bob Dylan's old concert producer, made Scorsese's breakout films, Mean Streets. I don't know if you've seen mm -hmm. it. They're starting some early work at that time around looking at psychologically what drives fandom. So, and I poached a bunch of people from MIT's Media Lab, had a whole data science and natural language processing function. They were looking at how do we actually predict some of these things. So I suddenly was put in the position of managing a research team, working with the data science team, figuring and learning how to actually build these 
natural language processing models to be able to measure this stuff at scale. And one of the first projects that I managed was Marvel. And this is, keep in mind, the year is 2013. The big debate at the time was, are there even female fans of superhero movies? And will a female, because obviously we only go watch uh, superhero movies if our husbands, brothers, sons want to go watch, you know, Captain Marvel, obviously. Um, (laughs) And uh, the next question that stemmed from that was, should we actually do a Black Widow film or should a Wonder Woman film happen? Like, should we actually do female at superhero movies? Because, you know, Catwoman didn't do well. Like, well, Catwoman was Because it was was shit. shit. (laughs) So obviously that wasn't going to do well. So that was a lot of the work that I was working on at the time. And we actually, through that combination of psychology and AI, were able to predict that a Wonder Woman movie would be successful. That was good. I liked Wonder Woman. The first one was amazing. Yeah. That there are actually female fans of superhero movies, just their engagement mechanisms and psychologically what motivates them is different from men. And it completely changed the studio's strategy for how they approach 21st century female characters. That's amazing. You actually, you had a real impact in in the studios at that level. You know, that's great. That's it was a- really incredible. Wow. Like, and just to have stumbled into that was also amazing. But also it kind of was the basis then of everything I've done since then, including Psych AI. Because that methodology is as relevant now as it was back then and not something that, I mean, it's been deployed in a few instances and certain elections, but it hasn't been used in the way that it should have been and could be. So let's take an example. So you're trying to predict the behavior of, I assume often it's a crowd, it's a lot of people. And then the AI you you can use to basically say, I'm just doing crass examples, say, fuck, we've got like 100,000 people here. Go and scrape all their social media and find for me these kinds of things. You, you, you set some sort of trajectory of knowledge that you need out of this information, I'm just guessing. And then you sit down as a psychologist and say, oh, that's, that's really interesting. Everyone in this area is talking about X and therefore, is that, is that the kind of thing? Sort of. I think there's a, a nuance in there, which is that there's a whole field within AI where you can use these sorts of models to actually predict those psychological traits. And it's all through the words that we use. So, for example, the if I over-index on using the word I, it's a high predictor that I'm a neurotic person. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So, so there's certain language features or language cues that people have. Tell us some more. I'm yeah. liking this. How do you spot a narcissist? <laughs> Same thing. Same thing. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of power words. Power words. So, so there's a lot of elements like that that have been developed in this field over like the last 30, 40 years where you can develop those in a language model, scale them, and then you, in essence, have AI that can actually extract these, these features. Yeah. So, mm. And it's not, I think, where like with ChatGPT, Dolly, all of these sort of generative programs, I think that now is sort of the shiny disco ball where everyone is, woohoo, AI. This is the thing that's amazing. But there's so many other subfields of AI that are so relevant and so powerful. And you know, I think, obviously, I'm a bit biased. I think we're very much in that sort of space. But there's a lot of other areas in this whole field that are super interesting. Resource allocation is a wicked problem, isn't it? And then AI is quite good at that. I mean, I have a client from ISO. He told me this 10 years ago because they had like... They bought some AI originally. They were given it, I think, by IBM 15 years ago that IBM has spent X millions on and they're sort of leaders. And he, he said exactly what you said. They said the thing that people don't understand AI is when do you use it? 
you know yeah. that's the difficult bit you know but they had a resource they have part of their system as and they use it in resource allocation i know which is you know so okay you've got this force for good then i mean it's quite nice to hear about something that's not trying to sell us products shareholder value and all of that because that's the sort of ai use that you know is top of the list probably as usual generally i mean i was in the marketing and pr space for you know a few years actually before i went and started my own thing and obviously in that instance it's very much like how are we going to sell more toothpaste or how are we going to sell more hair care products or, you know, how are we going to help, you know, oil and gas combat disinformation being spread about them from environmental activists? Like, you know, there's that sort of use case, which is a bit more prolific in that space. If there's all this disinformation out there, when you're trying to understand what's going on in something, in any given situation, you must be able to say, oh, 25% of this might be made up. It might be bots that we're studying. You know, it might be Russians just trying to screw us up, sort of thing. Is that is that is that part of the problem? Yeah, I mean, we have run into that before. I think there was a project that we worked on at one point where we discovered a, a botnet by a particular state actor. Um, that's the interesting thing, I think, with this space. If you look at disinformation, I mean, historically we always associate it with Russia and the KGB, but if we get outside of you know the Cold War, what's happened in the tech space has actually enabled more of an expansion and proliferation of disinformation, it can now come from a lot of different sources. The key thing is always looking at what's the intent of the actor? What could be the intent based on what you're seeing in the content itself? And you usually can figure that out. But uh, yeah, it puts us in some interesting spaces, I think, not just us as a company, but I think society more broadly, because we now are all operating in this space where it's just everywhere, and I think what we're seeing with the, the current conflict, as we were talking about earlier, is a good example of that, where what's truth and what's reality, we don't really know anymore. Instead, we're all kind of living in these splintered realities that become much harder to bridge, which then puts everyone at more risk. Yeah, and it drives so much anger. You know, people are marching yeah. in the street furious, you know, and yet nobody knows what they know. You know what I mean? Oh, I read this. It's, like, it's weird how much we get obsessed about stuff we read. It's like it's like back in the day, what you read was supposed to be a bit more truthful and there wasn't much of it. So I can I can see as a thing that we've grown up with a sort of bit more trust with written. What I don't get is people nowadays still trust the written word, that it's still sort of... I mean, maybe you ask another simpler question. Are you in the camp of like, AI is, we have created a, a thing that might destroy us and stuff like that. Are you on that sort of vibe with AI? I don't think I'm in that that camp yet. There might be a moment I am, I'm not sure. Right now I'm not though. I think we still have an incredible level of agency and power and creativity that we can leverage to shape how this gets used. And that obviously is you know, a big part of why I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing. But I think we need more people to think in a more creative way, probably more diverse voices, more diverse ways of thinking about how we deploy this sort of technology. Otherwise, I think it's running in such a direct... I feel like right now we're creating a lot of shiny disco balls. And the whole focus is on like, woohoo, look at the shiny disco ball. It can write like a really romantic poem for my wife so she doesn't divorce me because I used a sauna instead of, you know, letting her use the dryer. So we're just fun. But how impactful is that going to be, right? Are you a big company? I mean, this is an amazing business you built. And it's great that you can say, well, who the hell are you? I'm the one who got Wonder, Wonder Woman made. You know, it's like, you know. But uh, are you based in London? You're based in America? or 
No, so we're, we're, I'm based in London, but we're a remote first company, which again, post COVID. So we have people in the Netherlands, we have people here, we have people in Denmark, we have people in the States. So it's a bit of a hybrid and everybody has very, very different backgrounds from film production to, uh, the intelligence services, my background, which is more media. So it's, it's quite a mix. And what's the long-term goal? What is this all for? Business-wise, I want to really be able to shape a trajectory with AI that is not the trajectory we currently have. Like where we actually have models that are not biased and where we have technology that actually has an impact. Like that to me is kind of the North Star. And I also believe that there's a really solid business proposition in that because right now the world is an absolute mess. I think it's always been a mess, but now the amount of information about how much of a mess it is, the disinformation, this driving of these, these everyone in, you know, is feeling torn apart. It was this sort of golden period when the internet came about and everyone got close together and there was this lovely vibe. You know, it's like you said at the start, why do you not fight someone? Well, if you meet them. It's funny because you're absolutely describing the trajectory of Twitter. Am I? Yeah. yeah, yeah, you are. Like, it was a lovely, like... Cuddly place. Cuddly place where everybody got to know each other and hung out and, like, it was just so much fun. And then it's it's now a dumpster fire. Yeah, and it does feel a little bit like the social ecosystems like that as well. Like, I think Trevor Noah just launched a podcast, which is all about having difficult conversations. And I loved the trailer for it because he was talking about the fact that in order for us to sort of be in the purple and not in the the red and in the blue, we need to be able to have difficult conversations. And difficult conversations are an absolute minefield. Yeah. But right now in the sort of cultural zeitgeist we're in, we're so, A, we're so in our own silos, both algorithmically produced, but also, you know, physically and socially, and also because of cancel culture, that we're so afraid to have the conversation yeah. that the tension point in the block is before we even get onto the minefield. And why are we sitting on a podcast? Because I think it's like the only place you can do these things. Yeah. You know, I and mean, it's like, it's like the last bastion of truths or something that's public, you know. And yeah. even, even, gosh, that's very grandiose. Well, if you think <laughs> about it, you're not reading in the newspaper every day. Oh my God, did you hear what they said on this podcast? I mean, you know, there's mad conversations going on all the time and they aren't being like slammed. So, you know, I don't know. I can't think of any other place you can try and have a conversation that's complicated, you know. Yeah. But balance isn't interesting. I mean, you said earlier, People don't find balanced views. People want extreme views. Is that, are we just wired up to want to feed off shit? Is that really what we are? Bottom feeders. We're bottom feeders. Is that true? I don't, I don't think we're bottom feeders. I still have a higher opinion of uh, human behavior and psychology than that. But when you tried to do the balanced view on the West Bank, people didn't want, you said they, they, they sort of, they want you to be on one side or the other. But I think that's with a conflict where people have really strong identity-based beliefs and it's very, very difficult to overcome those. Mm. And so when you're writing things in a very factual way, that doesn't speak to people's emotions. It doesn't necessarily create empathy. And often it's the visual medium that does. It's film, it's music, it's creating points of like cultural relativeness and connectivity that you don't necessarily have in factual journalism. Mm. And I think this is the whole challenge with where journalism's gone. Look at Fox News, right? They might as well be like the, considered the ultimate proliferator of disinformation in the United States. I mean, if you look at the last election, that certainly felt like the case. Or look at GB News. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. But, and I mean, that's the state of media, but it's also been going that direction for the last 20 years because editorialized news 
that feels more like a story and that's really like, oh my God, rage, yeah, rage, rage, yeah. anger, fear, fear, fear. That really hits people hard. And so then they stay tuned to it. Mm. They kind of get addicted to it yeah. because there's a whole sort of emotional physiological response that they're experiencing. And that's then what they gravitate towards. Mm. And it, it's that thing you were saying about identity. It's tied up with your identity. So, you know, there's that conversation about that whatever it is, 17% or whatever it is of people in the US that, you know, literally you could show them, you know, whatever evidence you liked about Trump and they would still support him because yeah. it's part of their identity. Confirmation bias. Yeah. That's the thing. If you put facts in front of somebody who like fundamentally believes something to be true, you're reinforcing their belief. This is why with COVID communications, it didn't work at all. Because anybody who is like, the government wants me to take this vaccine because they're trying to take over my body or masks or conspiracy, yeah. the government's trying to take my freedom away. If you put stats in front of them of, hey, you putting on a mask will save 20% of people or five more older people will survive tonight because you put your mask on, that actually strengthens the existing belief. Yeah. So, and that's part of the challenge as well. It's like, we as humans are just, we love to think we're rational. We're not rational at no. all. We're a funky wiring of our beliefs, our identity, our values, our life experiences, and then all these layers of biases that fundamentally impact what we do and how we move through the world. Do you feel that at all? That like, we're the ones training the AI, but we're the ones we need to fix. Well, yes, exactly. I mean, people talk about, oh, AI is racist or AI is this or AI is that. It's like, no, no, we are racist. We are biased. We Prejudice. have these flaws. Exactly. And we've passed them on. Essentially, because the historical data that we're using to train these models contains all of our biases. And if you're a data scientist and you don't know to look for that, if you don't know how to filter that out, that then ends up in your model which is also why you need people with cognitive diversity and diversity of experience to be data scientists, to be able to, to train these models. And that's not the reality. Yeah, I mean, it's like um, the only good news is love, you know? And yet in British terms, you start laughing if someone says to you like... Yeah, because it you, sounds wanky. It huh? sounds ridiculous. And yeah. I'm here smiling as a Californian. I'm yeah. like, oh, how, yeah, sweet. Yeah. Well, my brother's moved to America and he's still got a British accent. He's been there years now and he just sent me this amazing pitch deck, but I had to tell, I had to send a voice note too saying we have to do a British version of this because it's like, it's got a slide that's like, and what's most important is unconditional love, you know? And you're literally as a Brit, you're like, oh my fucking God. But he's right. Oh, it's no, there's no scary. other word, you know? So we know what the problem is, you know, the next few years, how are you going to try and sort of solve some of these things? Scale it. Like, I want to have as much impact as possible across as many different use cases. And so technologically, I think we're going in a direction that I think is is pretty awesome and really, really cutting edge in terms of the way that we think about what data can do, how data can be the strongest advisor for somebody in these sorts of like clinch instances and what that then means from a whole product and design perspective. I think honestly, if I weren't doing what I'm doing work-wise, I probably would have gone and become a product designer because I love that intersection of just art and experience. But I think where we're going with that and also what we apply it to, a lot of the things that we're sort of scoping at the moment kind of sit in some really interesting domains of like, how do we keep certain types of people safe in certain types of contexts? And I think those kinds of use cases are, you know, why I love getting up in the morning and doing what we do. So, are you fundraising at the moment, or you 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 can? Yeah, you are. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, you must are. be great space to invest in, but the investors must 
want to make money, yet the thing that you might be, you might, you can help society. Shareholder value. Shareholder value. Helping society is harder to make money in. I, I think the interesting thing about this moment in time is that we're in a space where that distance between making money and doing the right thing is getting a little bit closer together, yeah. which is great, especially if you look at climate tech, that's definitely the case. I also think the, and there was an article, I think from Bloomberg that came out about this a couple of weeks ago, the biggest concern for most businesses right now is geopolitics. Because obviously it's a mess if China decides to invade Taiwan tomorrow. Mm. Everything between Russia and Ukraine. What's going on in the Middle East right now? America is its own mess. Everywhere is a bit of a shit show. And so if our technology can help enable decision-making in just this like crazy chaotic ocean of uncertainty, awesome. We'll, we'll have done the job. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Best piece of advice I ever got was actually from my father right when I graduated from university, which was, I don't care if you get married. I don't care if you have kids. I don't care about any of the traditional stuff. Just go be ambitious and live your life. Wow. And was he a first generation immigrant in America? Yeah, he came to the States in the 70s. For, from where? For, from India. But which bits of India? Uh, so he grew up in Jamshedpur. Oh, wow. Okay. That's really nice. You know, a lot, a lot of times first generation immigrants find it hard to bridge that gap. Yeah, it's amazing the way he embraced it like that. That's a really cool thing. And, uh, yeah, yeah, very much so. Very him. progressive. What's his name? Anil. Big up Anil. Yeah, very good. What's the worst advice you've ever been given? Oh. Go out, live Get your life. Married. <laughs> Get married. I mean, that's too obvious. That's too obvious. Get married before you're 30 is way too obvious. I think it actually was to make safe choices and to follow the money trail. Oh, I hate follow the money. Yeah, yeah, it's not what motivates me as a person. So some of my worst slip-ups have been because that's where my thinking went. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Business Without Bullshit is brought to you by Ori Clark, straight-talking financial and legal advice since 1935. You can find us at oriclark.com. What do you think is bullshit then in your industry? That we have no control over what AI does in our own destiny, that AI has sentience and that we have no control over it. Because we, we train it. We have trained it to be what it is now. We will continue to train the evolution of it. Again, I think it depends on some of the models that we're, we're talking about, and there's sort of a broader range of those. But I think if you think about it philosophically, if we think about AI, first of all, th there's so many things I think that are bullshit in, in the industry. One, which is anytime that somebody uses the term, that AI can solve everything, I like roll my eyes. I'm like, oh no, because we're not thinking about where we deploy it and the use cases that we align it to. Which, again, if you have a really, really powerful tool, you need to think about where you use it. The other thing as well is that I think we're almost at an inflection point where it's going to be very difficult to control where this goes. But we, we as humans, still have a high level of responsibility, but also agency as to where it goes. And we need to exercise that. Okay, Anjali, so this is where we're going to ask you a list of questions to get to know you a little better, and you have 10 seconds to answer each question. All right, cool. We'll see if we can actually make it work. Cue the music. What was your first job? Oh, Build-A-Bear Workshop. Oh, my God! Brilliant. Okay. <laughs> Building bears at 15. What was your worst job? Oh, Build-A-Bear Workshop. <laughs> so many happy kids. Keep fucking fucking <laughs> off. Uh, Favourite subject at school? History. Oh, me too. Special skill. Um, 
So I'm six feet tall. My special skill is being able to reach uh, hard to reach areas. I would love to have you around the house. Christ. I can't reach anything in my fucking flat. You have a very relaxing voice too. It's very nice. Thank uh, you. What did you want to be when you grew up? A uh, human rights attorney. Nice. Mm. What did your parents want you to be? Oh, a doctor. <laughs> Indian parents vibes. Yeah. Uh, what's your go-to karaoke song? Oh, um, I have two. So Tiny Dancer by Elton John and Ring of Fire by John Cash. Oh, yeah. Those are very different songs. That's quite Very, very. Uh, office. <laughs> business or bullshit? Oh, business. Oh, Who doesn't you. love an office dog? Thank you. Have you ever been fired? I've sort of been fired. Okay, we'll come back to that. <laughs> What's your vice? My uh, addiction to butter croissants. Mm, do you like the little ones? Oh yeah, they're so yeah. The little ones, especially in winter, nice and heated. And you sort of got fired. How? I took a job that was not the right job, and uh, I think we uh, agreed to disagree. We we agreed to part ways. Elegantly agreed to part ways. That's just like Suella. That's exactly what happened with her. Except I didn't write any angry letters. <laughs> with really bad, bad grammar. Yeah, just just being bitter is not my my jam. It's a waste of time. Have you got any recommendations on things we should be reading, yes. watching, listening to? So I recently came across a book called AI on Trial by Mark Deem. Uh, who is a barrister here in London. I have a podcast called Make Data Human. Oh, wow. Um, and I had Mark on as a guest and was just a remarkable guy. So, so insightful. And what he does in the book is he actually sort of, it's as if AI were on trial, like in an actual court case, and goes through all the different elements of AI. What is it? So actually deconstructing what AI is into its subcomponents in a way that was just so articulately done, but also gets down to what the essence of AI is, which none of us really have a sense of that. So it's very beautifully deconstructed. And then looking at things like AI in a military context or AI in is AI racist and going through all the different societal elements and layers of the technology itself. It's a brilliant book. Wow. That sounds great. Highly recommend it. We should give you your 30 seconds to pitch anything you would like. Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. Check out the podcast, Make Data Human. It's my podcast. We talk a lot about behavioral science, data science, how it can be used for social good, what's AI, bias and racism in AI, all the fun topics we've been talking about today, we talk about on that podcast. And also check out the Psych AI group because we're doing some pretty interesting work. Amazing. Uh, thank you so much. It's oh, been thank a pleasure. You. So, uh, so there we have it. That was this week's episode of Business Without Bullshit. Thank you, Angeline. Thank you, Pippa. Thank you, Dee. Thank you, Howard. Our producer extraordinaire is, 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 is in the room, in the hoose. Uh, we'll be back with our quiz, Business or Bullshit, on Thursday. Until then, it's ciao.